What do you do when you have good news? You share it. You know, today, for those of you who are socially media inclined, you would get on Facebook or, you know, let's say it's something really monumental, like you got engaged to be married. You would, you would want to tell as many people as you could. 20 years ago, you would have maybe had a cell phone, maybe had a landline, you would have called people. You go back before that, you would have had written letters to people or sent a telegram. Even farther back, sent messengers out, spread the good news. When we have something that's joyous, that's changed our life, we have this desire to let other people know about it. Well, as believers, we have the most amazing news ever. And Jesus commanded us to share that. Before we get to our passage in John today, let's look at the Great Commission briefly. Matthew 28, verses 16 to 20. Very end of Matthew's Gospel. says there, but the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had designated. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I may have shared this before, but I thought it was really funny. I heard something a while back that said that if you've been in a ministry for three years, and you only have 12 followers, none of whom can understand anything you teach, and one of them wants to kill you, you're doing just as well as Jesus did. <laughs> but you look at that, you have... The 11 there, obviously minus Judas, and, and I'm sure there were other believers there, but it was not a large group. And yet they took Jesus' words there and they changed the world forever. They spread that good news. The first three weeks of this series on serving, we have looked inward. We've looked that we've each been gifted in ways that serve the church. That to fulfill that, we need unity, which requires humility and forgiveness among one another. Those are essential to us being one body that is able to accomplish the things that God has given to us to accomplish. Highlight that. Turn with me quickly to Ephesians 4. This goes back to, beginning in verse 11, this goes back to that idea that we looked at in the first week where we've each been gifted differently and what's the end goal from that. Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 11, Paul says, And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. That's what we're called to do. This is we use the gifts God's given us to build each other up. 
until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. And Paul will continue there. He's pointing towards this fact that if we are united in our faith, in the gifts that God has given us, that we are building one another up. And he's pointing towards growth and maturity. We're not children tossed here and there. We, we know what is truth. We're able to do those things. And so I look at the church being, it starts here because this is like our boot camp to go out and accomplish what God wants us to accomplish. And what we're to accomplish in the world is that Jesus told us to make disciples. To do that, you have to be a disciple yourself. And how we accomplish that is here in the church. In the church, serving one another, loving one another, growing in our knowledge and our faith. And now we turn our attention outwards. We point towards the world. And we see that serving the world, unlike serving in the church, serving the world is sharing the good news of Jesus. Serving the world is sharing the gospel. To do that today, we're going to look at the story of the Samaritan woman. It's a long passage, so I read it in full there to begin. But I think in anything we're doing, if we're seeking to become like Jesus, there's no better example than Jesus himself. And so if we're looking at how do I share the gospel with the world around me, let's go to our ultimate example in Jesus Christ. Join me in prayer before we begin. Lord, I do pray that you bless this time we have together, Lord. Thank you for the scripture. Pray that you help me to speak clearly to get across the things that I've come to to learn and the things that I've been convicted by this week, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our first point today is that we are to offer hope to all who need it. We are to offer hope to all who need it. In 1 Peter 3.15, Peter tells us that we are to always be ready to give a defense for the joy that is in us. That's a powerful statement. Do you feel ready? Because if we're to offer hope to all who need it, you never know when that opportunity is going to come up. I'm going to begin reading here in verse 4. Verses 4 to 6. And it says, And he had to pass through Samaria, so he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well, and it was about the sixth hour. So here it says that he had to pass through. The quickest route from where he was going to where he was, or from where he was to where he was going, was through Samaria. And this was not a route that Jews would not take. A rabbi or a Pharisee would have never been caught dead walking through there. But to Jesus, he had to go there. I, I look at his life and you look at the things he says. His life was about doing the will of the Father. And I, I believe he knew that he had a divine appointment. It wasn't just about taking the quickest route. It was that he had to be there. And it says that when it was the sixth hour in our time, that would have been about noon. 
And it's just, uh, this verse is another reminder of Jesus' humanity and that he was tired. That they had been walking all day and at noon he was tired. Continue with verses 7 through 9. It says, There came a woman of Samaria to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. I think it's hard for us to understand in our culture today just how big this divide was between the Jews and the Samaritans. I mean, the Jews viewed themselves above everyone anyways, but they had these Samaritans that when the Jews had been in exile, some of the Samaritans were left there and the Assyrians brought in other Gentile or brought in Gentiles. And so the Samaritans by this point had intermarried with the Gentiles and they had some pagan beliefs and some that looked like Judaism and their race was mixed. And so the Jews looked down on them more than they would have even just a, a pure Gentile. I think it's interesting. There's so much talk in our country of, of race and racism and how all these things that are brought up and how racist we are and it's all built on a racist system. But you look around the world today, even today, I mean, this isn't just the past. And my dad works with teaching pastors in Myanmar. And it was one of the first challenges he had to understand when he got there is that there are, I believe, oh, now I've forgotten. There's a number of tribes in Myanmar. It used to be called Burma. That was the largest of these tribes. Well, among the tribes, they can't stand each other. If I look at 15 people from Myanmar, I can't tell. To me, they all look very similar. But to them, they know who's from what tribe just by their look, and they may or may not associate with someone from another tribe. Look at another example from closer to where Jesus was from. When I was at the funeral home, we did many, many Muslim funerals. And I was on one at the mosque that was for Middle Eastern Muslims, those that were from Iran and Afghanistan and Iraq. And I was talking with one of the gentlemen there, and I actually had to leave there and go to another Muslim funeral. And he said, oh, really, where, where are they from? And I said, well, they're Somali. The Somalis had a, a mosque on the other side of town. The gentleman spit on the ground and said, they are not even human. I mean, that, that was how he viewed them. These people of the same, quote-unquote, faith as him, he didn't even view them as human. And that was the way it is in their, their culture in the Middle East, the way they look down on, on those people. And so you think of however much prejudice or divide we might have towards other people, nothing would compare to a Jewish man and how he should have reacted to this woman at the well. I found this quote interesting. It said, the normal prejudices of the day prohibited public conversation between men and women, between Jews and Samaritans, and especially between strangers. A Jewish rabbi would rather go thirsty than violate these properties. The proprieties, excuse me. And I think it's interesting that this is, Jesus was breaking all of these social norms because he knew this woman needed the hope that he had to offer. And I thought about that quote. I thought about, I've used actually his name several times and 
Beth was kind enough to remind me that many of you may not even know who Woody Hayes is. Woody Hayes was the football coach at Ohio State for 27 years. He won five national championships, and he was a very colorful character, and so he's sort of a mythical figure there. There's all these stories about him, and there's one story that, you know, he hated Michigan. Michigan's their biggest rival. He wouldn't even use their name. He called them that team up north. And so there's this one legend of him that he had to go into Michigan to recruit a player, and he was driving back towards Ohio, and he ran out of gas a couple miles away from the state border. And the, the story goes that even though there was a gas station nearby, he got out and he pushed his car across the state line because he refused to buy gas in the state of Michigan. That's the way a, a rabbi or a Pharisee in Jesus' time would have viewed the Samaritans. He would not only wouldn't have talked with her, he would have rather died of thirst than ask her for a drink of water. But in this we see that Jesus is willing to talk with anyone, to share the good news of who he was with anyone. Verse 10, Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. If you knew. Well, she obviously doesn't know. She doesn't have a clue. Many people that you interact with have no idea what the gift of God is of what their need is. But despite the fact that she doesn't know, Jesus offers, he offers her living water. As he will get to, he offers her eternal life. Verse 11 and 12. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where do you again, where do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Who gave us this well and drank of it? Himself and his sons and his cattle? So just like Nicodemus in, in John 3, where Jesus says you have to be born again, and Nicodemus is, well, how do you do that? You can't. He's going to the physical. She here, too, is going to the physical. How can you offer me any water? You don't even have anything to draw with. And she says, you're not greater than Jacob, are you? What? She's basically asking, what is this that you were claiming? I mean, this well had been there for, since Jacob, and it was still flowing with water, and yet Jesus is claiming that he has something better. And so this is what she's asking here. You see the way Jesus is turning this in, and trying to bring out who he is, reveal himself to her, and so he gets her questioning. What are you claiming? But he's offering her something great. And the amazing thing is that we can offer that to people too. Not on our power, or even the power of the person receiving the offer, but on the power of who Jesus is. Verses 13 and 14. Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become a well of water springing up to eternal life. 
This is the offer. Jesus is clarifying the offer. I think it's important to note here, if you just walk up to someone you know who needs the gospel and you just start shouting the truth at them, it may be their first rejection to deny it. But Jesus gets her talking. And he makes an offer. And well, what's that about? What are you claiming? And then he clarifies exactly what he's claiming. If you take what Jesus is offering, if you take this drink, you will never thirst again. And as he says, the living water is the saving message. And once you have received it, and Jesus' metaphor here, once you have drunk it, you will have eternal life. Jesus will make it clear in the following verses that the living water is the truth that he is the Messiah and that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. And he does this to a Samaritan woman. Again, someone he never should have had any contact with. I mean, how quick I am to, to look at others and judge others by their actions or, or whatever. To view myself as holier than thou out. Jesus was willing to share this good news with the polar opposite of who he was. So I challenge you, be willing to share the good news about Jesus with anyone. In spite of Peter's admonition that we should always be ready to give a defense or a reason or an account for the hope that we have, I think that's one thing that holds many many Christians back is I don't feel like I I know enough or you know how do I know if I've got the right answers I think the the best we can do no one is ever going to get it perfect but we use God's word and we come here on Sundays so that we know his word and we should know it so that we can share it but if you feel like you'll get nervous and you don't know if you remember all the the points use what I call one verse evangelism. That you look at John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shall have eternal life. Shall not perish but have eternal life. So you have God loved. God gave. We believe. We receive. That's the gospel in one verse. That's the offer. As Jesus is going to get to later, there's sowing and reaping. You have to be ready to sow that seed. To know that people need that offer. They need someone to tell them what God has done for them. How much he loved them. What he gave, his only begotten son. And that we have to believe if we're going to receive eternal life. I forgot to bring it up here with me. I also wanted to mention to you, I, when I went to the pastor's conference a few weeks ago, I brought back a couple hundred of these little booklets. It's the Gospel of John. And if you've got someone and you've shared these things with, I mean, it's a great, the Gospel of John is, I mean, John makes his point clear in the second to last verse in the book that many things more that Jesus did than that, but he wrote down those things so that people would believe. It's 
the thrust of his whole gospel. So if people have questions, give it to them. Ask them to read it. Ask them to come back with the questions they have. There are ways to get that good news out there. So we move to verse 15, we get to our second point. And that's meet people where they are. Meet people where they are. Now, as we build off that first point, I will say there are people out there who are so gifted by God in that way, where they can take any conversation that comes their way and turn it towards spiritual things and plant that seed. And I think we all need to be able to do that. And as we see here, see the way Jesus brings us out, I want to point to what I think the most practical form of evangelism is in our life. So verse 15 says, The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw. So we see as, as she responds, she's still stuck in the physical. She still thinks that if this guy has magic water, I want magic water. I don't want to walk all the way out here to fill my jars and walk back. Verses 16 to 18. He said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said, you have correctly said that I have no husband. For you've had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. This you have said truly. So Jesus takes her story to move her from the physical to the spiritual. Jesus delves into her life and who she is to get her off this immediate reaction from physical, a physical offer to a spiritual offer. I mean, you think about this, what he said to her here and what she responds with. Beyond just the spiritual implications of having all of these divorces and living an immoral lifestyle, think of the turmoil and pain that that must have brought forth in her life. It's hard when relationships end. We were created to be married to one woman or one husband, and, and that, when that ends, it's hard. And she's had it end and end and end, and she's living with some man who's now is not her husband, and there's no real hope for the future, and she's... This woman was hurting. And on top of that, because of her life, she was ostracized by her community. You go back to the very beginning of the story, she came there at noon. The women didn't go at noon. They went first thing in the morning because it wasn't so hot. But she wasn't allowed to go with everyone else because she was living this terrible life. But Jesus uses that hurt within her to point towards the solution. And I bring this up because you and I are not omniscient like Jesus. I can't just walk up to someone and start a conversation and know everything about their life and the deeper things that will help me to point them towards their need for Christ and why this offer is so relevant to them. And so while we always need to be ready to give a reason to anyone, I would say beyond that, we always need to be looking to build relationships, to practice relational evangelism, 
you see what Jesus did there? It could take you weeks or months or I don't know how long to get to the point where you understand a person enough to show them exactly why they need this offer of Jesus Christ. Verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. It's interesting here as she jumps from, you jump from 18 to 19. In 18, you see, the Samaritans only believed in the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch. And so for them, there was no prophet after Moses. And that if there was a prophet after Moses, it was going to be the Messiah. And so her saying that I perceive that you might be a prophet is her first hint at understanding who Jesus was. But she goes right from that into this theological debate. And if you've shared your faith, you may have experienced this many, many times because when people are feeling a conviction, as Jesus has convicted her, they often want to change the subject. And one of the easiest ways to change the subject is to bring up the differences. Well, you believe that, we believe this. In her case here, like I said, they only believe the first five books of the Bible. And God had ordered them to worship at Mount Gerzim, where they currently were. But later on in the Old Testament, God ordered the temple to be built in Jerusalem. And so the Jews worshiped there where God had asked for the temple to be built. The Samaritans thought that God never spoke again after telling them to worship there. And so she brings up this debate. I thought this was interesting. I read one place that said that there are some people who cannot engage in a religious conversation with a person of a different persuasion without bringing up the points in which they differ. And that's, again, that's what she's doing here. Well, let's not get too deep into that because that might really exposed who I am. So let's talk about this. Let's read Jesus' response beginning in verse 21. Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He who is called the Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Jesus doesn't get bogged down in this spiritual argument. Because this offer he is offering her is so far above what she's talking about. He says the hour is coming when things are going to change. That hour is him. It's his perfect life, his work on the cross, his resurrection. That it was changing God's, the way God relates to the world. And what it all boils down to is that grace changes everything. And that's what we need to get across to people. That the hurts and the pains and the, the, the need that we have for God, because that's what he created in us, the need we have to worship, 
that God has created a way, he made a way through his son Jesus Christ for us to fulfill that, for us to have a relationship with him, for us to have the hope of eternal life with him. And that's what we need to point to, no matter what the argument is. There are so many minor theological things that can be taught and brought about, but the offer is eternal life for those who believe because of what Jesus Christ did for us, because of God's love for us. As we interact and we get to know people, what their needs are, we can understand what they're facing and to show them that Jesus has offered a better way. I think one of the greatest ways we can do this is to to understand our own personal testimony. I've mentioned it over and over, the way we live our lives, but living through grace and the Spirit and walking in the Spirit shows people that there's something different. But when you're getting to know someone and trying to share what this offer means, tell them what it's done in your life. If you're living this way, you're going to be experiencing that abundant life that Jesus offered in John 10.10. Tell them what it means. Not that your life is easy or everything is roses, but you're experiencing a different kind of life because of the grace that God has offered through Jesus Christ. And as we get to know people, if they know who you are and they see it in your life, they'll believe it when you tell them. Our third and final point is to be ready. Be ready. Verses 27 to 30. At this point, his disciples came, and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek, or why do you speak with her? So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, Come see a man who told me all things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? They went out of the city and were coming to him. And so we see this, Jesus' ministry to her is starting to, to bear other fruits. And these men are coming. Verses 31 to 34. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, No one brought him anything to eat, did he? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. You know, when you're hungry... Food satisfies. Some foods maybe taste better than others, but if you are really, really hungry, anything satisfies. There's nothing more satisfying for us as believers than to do the work that God has put in front of us. I keep going back to it, but again, we're on this series on serving. And so Ephesians 2.10, where God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for the works which God has prepared for us. God has put things in your life, people in your life, and you have the opportunity to do God's work. And Jesus is saying here, you know, he had been walking all day. Where they were was like 30 miles from where they had started. 
And so I don't know how long they'd walked that day before noon, but they're traveling and walking and carrying everything they have with them. So I'm sure he was not only tired, but hungry as well. And yet, to him, the thing that satisfied the most was doing the work that God had put there for him. That's why we are here. And it satisfies us in a way like no other to do what God has given us. And that's Jesus' spiritual point here is to his disciples. Verse 35, Jesus says, Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look to the fields, that they are white for harvest. Jesus' reference to four months here is probably uh, proverbial that in their planting season, it was about four months from when they would sow the seed to when they would reap the harvest. I think what he's saying here is not that you share the word and then four months later you go back. What he's saying is the time is short. You can share it and expect a harvest. thought of white for harvest. You know, when I lived in Virginia, uh, there were several times during my fall semesters, my sister was going to school in the panhandle of Florida, and I would drive across the south to get down to Florida. When you pass a cotton field that is ready for harvest, I mean, it is just a big white poofball everywhere. (laughs) And the plants are heavy because these balls of cotton are, are ready to be to be picked that's what Jesus is saying here this is ready he's trying to give his disciples a spiritual vision for those around themselves that it wasn't just all about them it was about what work that God was doing and they needed to look around them specifically in this moment look at all these men that are coming out of the city that they want to know who this Jesus is. The field was ready for harvest. And those were the eyes they needed. They needed to be ready for the work that God was putting in front of them. And they could do that by just opening their eyes. See these lost people. Get out of this mindset of being consumed by their own physical needs. And as with the grain that Jesus was talking about or the cotton in the south or even the, the beans and the, the hay here, there is a time designated for the harvest. And if we don't reach those people, if we don't harvest that seed, in the field, it goes to waste. This was talked about in Sunday school this morning. In life, if they don't understand that, if they don't ever believe, they're going to spend eternity separated from God. So we need to have spiritual eyes and be ready. Verse 36, Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal, so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. The reaper here in this view is Jesus, and potentially his disciples could be reapers. These wages that he's saying they will receive are the reward for their labor. 
For Jesus, the reward for his labor was the exaltation that God had given him and would give him. For the disciples, it's the, the rewards that they will receive at the judgment seat of Christ. And beyond that, we, we can see in our lives, we should never do God's work looking for personal satisfaction, but it is the most excellent byproduct ever that if we are doing the work and we're doing it with the right heart, for the right reasons, that God will provide that satisfaction in our life, that joy in doing what he has put before us. Verses 37 and 38. For in this case, the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I have sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. This means that both the sowers and reapers are necessary. You can't go into the field in the spring and sow the seed and expect to get paid in the fall if you don't go out and, and gather it up or have someone else do it. You can't show up to the field in the fall and look for the crops if you never sowed them in the spring. It takes both. And oftentimes God uses different people for different things. And so if you're sharing his word and you don't get any Harvest from that, take heart that it is God doing the work and he may bring along someone to reap that. And if you share the gospel with someone and they believe, thank God for those who went before that planted seeds. Rejoice together as he said in the previous verse. 1 Corinthians 3.6, Paul said, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was the one causing the growth. That's the attitude we need. That we get to play a part in what God is doing and rejoice in that. That this world around us that needs the gospel so badly, that we've got that good news that God loved, God gave. If we believe, we receive. That's the good news that changed your life. It's the good news that changed my life. It's the good news that gives me hope for eternity. And other people need it. Serving the world means sharing the gospel. Serving the world means sharing the gospel. And remember, it begins here. Again, like soldiers in a boot camp. You know, when I was uh, in the funeral service every year, I had to get continuing education. Well, we show up every Sunday morning for continuing education and other times, and we fellowship amongst each other because we grow together. And we're growing together for this, to impact the world with the good news and so that people will believe and receive, and then we can teach them as well, and they can become disciples. When we're here and we're serving each other, we're getting what we need. You get what we need to offer hope. Hope into a world, again, that desperately needs it. This woman was without hope, but Jesus himself was that hope, and so he was able to share who he was with her. We need to know who he is and exactly what he has done and what the graces he's offering so we can share it with other people and be ready for whoever God brings into our path. It's here that we get what we need to meet with people where they are. 
if we have those relational qualities that we have with one another, that we're supposed to have with one another, above all, love, selfless love is what we're called to do among other believers, then we build those skills and we're able to use them outside of the church. It's interesting with this idea of meeting people where they are. I view this as relational evangelism. As I said, you get to know people. You get to know what their hurts and needs are. You see Jesus doing this throughout his ministry, and again, he's omniscient. He could walk up to someone and know exactly what their physical ailment was or what their question in their mind was, and he was able to, like that, know the best way to respond that would cause them to believe in who he was. We're not like that, and so for us it takes time. But even though we may not be able to heal the lame or the blind or anyone else, there are physical needs that we can meet from people. When you're looking to meet people where they are and find out what those needs are, there's obviously a spiritual need above everything else. But look at how Jesus used physical needs to open the door to spiritual needs. Use his example. See where those needs you can meet are. And offer them the ultimate solution to their ultimate problem. And lastly, it's here at the church where we get what we need to be ready. Remember, I said that Jesus, when he told them to, to lift your eyes up, the field was white with harvest. He was, he was wanting them to have a spiritual vision. And again, you look at these character traits we're supposed to have among each other. Last week, in the passage in Colossians we looked at, Paul gave a list of these things that they were supposed to be having in their heart. One of those was a humble attitude. And at the core of that humble attitude, I told you, was basically being able to view other people the way that God views them. The, the innate value in each person. In Matthew 9.36, it says that Jesus saw the people and he had compassion. Again, that word compassion, like I was talking about last week, is in the Greek, it literally means the turning in your guts. Jesus saw the people that they were like a sheep, they were like sheep without a shepherd. Is that how you view the world around you, the unsaved world? That's how we need to. We need to have that spiritual vision of the eternal destiny and the current hopelessness of those without Christ. You need that spiritual vision to be ready to do those works that God has put in front of us. I'm challenging you that if you're growing more as a disciple here in the church, you need to be making more disciples. That's what Jesus called us to do. And in many ways that falls on us each individually, but I do want to say this, that there are things we can do as a church to meet physical needs, to open doors to relationships, to be ready to help other people, to share. I've talked with several people here that have given me ideas of ways we can to reach out to the community. But if you have something that, that you see and you think it's a need we can meet as a church, bring it to me. I want to know those things. I want to find out ways that we can share the gospel. Do what we're called to do. 
Go therefore and make disciples. Would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for the good news and how good that news is because there's nothing that I could ever do to earn a right relationship with you and yet you have given Jesus and Jesus was obedient and lived a perfect life and he died and he rose again for my sins so that by believing, Lord, I have a relationship with you and I have the hope of eternal life. 